Welcome to week five. Let's go ahead and pray to get us started. Father God, I just thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to come uh, together tonight. Lord, I pray as our minds might be scattered just from the day, the week. God, I pray that you would just, um, just clear our minds, help us to focus on you, focus on your word. And God, I pray that your spirit would just uh, open up our minds, open up our hearts to see you more clear through your word, God, that we would know, love, and obey you more. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, week five, Israel's restoration is promised. A quick recap so we know where we're launching from tonight. Hosea opened with a story from his own life and a poem symbolizing the relationship between faithful God and unfaithful Israel. Hosea then went to great lengths to give evidence of Israel's unfaithfulness before pronouncing spiritual, political, and personal judgments upon the nation for breaking the covenant. Tonight we look at the last section of the book. It's thought to be four separate oracles, very close to our chapter divisions. And in all four, we see God, through Hosea, rehearsing Israel's story to them. From a bird's eye view, this last section covers the meta-narrative, or the big story of scripture in miniature. We'll see elements of creation, the fall, redemption, and restoration within these passages. So I've had the blessing of having several extra grandmothers uh, growing up from the church I grew up in. I had my grandma, but in addition, I had um, Grandma Sue, Granny Joyce, and Grandma Sadie. These women have been around literally my entire life. And my mom used to have a salon in our childhood home uh, growing up. And Grandma Sadie would come weekly on Saturday mornings to get her hair rolled before church on Sunday. And she'd sit under the dryer and study her Sunday school lesson for the next morning, week in and week out. I mean, it was, it was so much so that that's been over 10 years from now, and just the image is crystal clear in my mind. And as I got older and began to run and do things on my own, uh, various activities and events on Saturday mornings, if Grandma Sadie was in the salon and I was headed out to tell my mom bye or to grab money, uh, Grandma Sadie would always say as I left the door, Remember whose you are. One time I had a few spare minutes uh, for her to elaborate. She said, everywhere you go and everything you do is a reflection on your family. That's important, but what's more important is that you are your heavenly fathers. Whenever and wherever you go, remember whose you are. God, through Hosea, is essentially saying the same thing in these last four chapters. Remember me. Remember whose you are. Chapter 11 opens with a concise summary of Israel's origin story. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. This recalls the exodus out of Egypt, where I've heard it taught that the nation of Israel was born through blood, the Passover, and water, the parting of the Red Sea. God calling Israel out of Egypt did not only provide physical freedom from slavery, but also was a spiritual adoption. This newborn nation was a fulfillment of the promise of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to make them a great nation, one through whom all nations would be blessed. The descendants of Jacob were 70 persons going into Egypt, according to Exodus 1.5. 
and historical accounts estimate over two million in number coming out of Egypt. We see a sense of a beginning here, a creation, if you will, of this nation chosen by God as a son. And this father-son language goes back even to Exodus 4, 22 and 23, when God tells Moses to say to Pharaoh that Israel is his firstborn son and to let him go. God says here in Hosea that he loved this child. The word love there stressing his deep affection, but also his covenant loyalty to them. As we know from the last few weeks of Hosea, Israel was a rebellious child. Verse 2 says, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Their rebellion or their fall is shown in two ways. It was a refusal to adhere to the call of God and a refusal to stop sacrificing to false gods. We see God's heart towards Israel displayed in verses 3 and 4. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. God was like a father to Israel, teaching Israel to take its first steps, but Israel didn't recognize who they owed everything to. Then we see a switch to a metaphor of a farmer and an animal. We see God gently cared for Israel. He uh, uh, eased their yoke of oppression, and he met their physical needs. Verses 5 through 7, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Because of their rebellion, judgments that we've seen in previous weeks here are repeated. Assyria will be their king and put an end to the games of seeking the kings without the Lord's guidance and entering into foreign covenants for protection. There have been two stresses along the way so far, one in verse 2 and one in verse 7, that Israel is bent on turning away from the Lord. They have completely doubled down, and as we saw in the week four homework, they've been doubling down in their sin for well over 500 years. But God, who is rich in mercy, verses 8 and 9, he says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Edmah? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. The Lord expresses his continued love for his people, and as Nicole pointed out last week in the teaching on judgments, God cares deeply for his people, and in the last section, we get to see that clearly. The ESV study Bible noted on verse 8 that the Lord is a person filled with compassion, unlike the lifeless Bales. We see God's emotions for his people through his love, wrath, compassion, and anger, which is a contrast to their emotionless idols. He's always more and better. He says he won't give them what they deserve and make them like the cities that were burned up with Sodom and Gomorrah, which begins to hint that while there will be mass destruction in the judgments brought on from the covenant curses that they have chosen, not all of Israel will be destroyed. 
Though Israel is completely faithless and deserves complete destruction, God remains faithful to the people that he loves. Take note, this does not cancel out any of the judgments that have been pronounced thus far. He says there, I will not again destroy Ephraim. Ephraim will be destroyed, but not completely. The idea of a remnant, a small group of faithful Israelites comes on scene, carrying with it promises of redemption. And one of the commentators that we looked at, Elizabeth Actemeyer, explained so well. She said, he won't give up his beloved because he is love. As love, God is sovereign. Israel's sinfulness cannot overcome or change this. Israel will not and does not repent, but Israel's attitude and action cannot finally dictate what God will be. He will be what he is, namely sovereign love that will determine Israel's destiny beyond effects of its evil, beyond Assyria, beyond all human will and working. Verses 10 and 11 in this chapter give us a picture of a promised homecoming. It says, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return to their home. I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. The lion illustration from chapter five returns. God roars, and this faithful remnant will return home from the judgment of exile. They'll come back from all over with reverent fear, knowing what they deserve because of their nation's sin, and yet receiving grace. Again, it's important to note this is not the immediate generation at hand. This is a generation to come that will return to the, to the Lord in his covenant while in exile. But to those few that might have remained faithful in, in the current time, this promise of mercy in the future would have brought so much encouragement. It would have been exactly as Moses had foretold in Deuteronomy 4 before Israel had even entered the promised land. If you'd like to turn with me, Deuteronomy 4, we're going to start in 23. So this is before Israel has even entered into the promised land, hundreds and hundreds of years before Hosea's Israel Moses, through God, says, Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you'll be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord, your God and obey his voice for the Lord, your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So the end of chapter 11 and chapter 12 show us more recounts of Israel's past in the light of their present. 
primarily focusing on who God had been to the patriarch, Jacob. These next few chapters will feel a little repetitive of chapter 11 and really the book as a whole. I was actually feeling this sense of, okay, we get it, Hosea. They are, uh, they're a bunch of idolaters bent on their idolatry. You can skip that part. <laughs> but then almost immediately, the hymn we sang a few Sundays ago began to play in my mind, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Just as Israel needed constant reminding of what their sin was and where it led, we too need to be reminded. The Bible often repeats because we are a people in constant need of repetition. Chapter 11, verse 12 says, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. Israel's deceit is called out here. One scholar said their deceit is made known by their continual worship of Baals while pledging their allegiance to God but ignoring his covenant altogether. It is worth noting in the verses that we just read that the NIV and a few other translations translate the end of verse 12 as Judah is unruly against God, even against the faithful holy one. And so that changes the meaning dramatically, like the opposite from being another contrast of the northern and southern kingdoms to Hosea being concerned for the whole people of Israel. As we've mentioned, Judah has a few extra years, but they are not perfectly faithful to the covenant either. Ephraim seeking a covenant with Assyria is mentioned again, as well as taking oil to Egypt. That was thought to be the gift giving involved in making foreign alliances. But this pursuit of the wind is futile when God alone is who has promised the Israelites security. Verses two through six. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. These verses begin with court language again, uh, bringing an indictment against Judah and Israel, and then recounts a couple of stories from the patriarch Jacob's life. I'll be honest, I got a little lost trying to figure out what we were supposed to take away from these points mentioned in Jacob's life. Is this a good thing? Is Jacob being uh, shown in a positive light? Is he being shown in a negative light? Is it kind of like, hey, you're acting like your dad, stop it. Or is it, hey, act like your dad, he's a good example for you. So uh, the commentators were all over the place, so I just went and just spent some time in these uh, sections that were mentioned uh, back in Genesis. And so verse 3 here shows the change of, na of names from Jacob, which meant he takes by the hill or he cheats, to, he sh to Israel, he strives with God. You saw that in your homework this week, though I did notice I made a mistake of combining two stories into one question. So if you caught that, I'm sorry about uh, that confusion, but to hopefully iron it out a bit, the angel or man uh, wrestled with Jacob at Peniel in Genesis 32. And God appeared to Jacob and told him to go back to Bethel in Genesis 35. Both of those accounts include this renaming of Jacob to Israel from he grabs the hill or he cheats to he strives with God. 
And in Genesis 35, God tells Jacob to go back to Bethel. Bethel, we know, uh, was, has already mentioned, been mentioned in Hosea under another name, Bethaven, uh, house of evil. But when Jacob named it in Genesis 35, Bethel meant house of God. Uh, that he named that whenever he was running away from his brother Esau. And this is where Jacob had his dream of the ladder with angels ascending and descending. And the Lord spoke to Jacob for the first time there, introducing himself as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, the covenant God. God gave Jacob the covenant promises there at Bethel the first time in Genesis 28. And then in Genesis 35, he tells him to go back, go back to that place after he's left Laban, after he's met Esau. And I want to show you what Jacob's first inclination was upon hearing God tell him to return to Bethel. You don't have to turn there with me, but it's Genesis 35 verses 1 through 4. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So did you catch it? Jacob tells his whole household to get rid of the foreign gods. I think Jacob, albeit imperfect at times, is a good example to the nation that had come from him during Hosea's time. God spoke with Jacob, and he was renamed, showing a new relationship with God. The Lord, the God of hosts. Hosea breaks out there in chapter 12, verse 5, with the Lord's memorial name, the name that was supposed to be remembered for generations, the I am who I am, God, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. Remember whose you are. Just as Jacob, with the help of God, returned, held fast to the covenant, and waited upon the Lord, the Israelites have been called to do the same thing, to continue the covenant relationship. And as we discussed already, there will be a you that returns to this covenant. Verses 7 and 8 a merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, oh, but I'm rich. I found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. So this is a rare verse in the book to see a more specific example of their interpersonal sins. Hosea calls out the greed and deceit in Ephraim by likening them to Canaanite merchants with false balances. So here again, this is another time that they are compared, the people of God are compared to the enemies of God. The rich had oppressed the poor for financial gain, and they're proud of it. They justify it by boasting their financial property, and they say there's no sin to be found, or rather that the end justified their means. There's nothing new under the sun. We saw James speak to his readers of similar things in James chapter 5. He said, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Chapter 12, verse 9 says, I'm the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I'll again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. So Ephraim should have known 
who his God was and that all their prosperity came from his hands. He'll punish their greed accordingly. He will take them out of the luxury that the wealthy are used to and make them live again in the tents that they dwelled in during the years in the wilderness. So the appointed feast there refers to the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths or Huts, depending on where you read it. This wasn't being practiced during Hosea's time, imagine that, but it was a feast that had been in Israel's past specifically to remind them of their deliverance from Egypt. They had stopped remembering, and now it would be their punishment. The good news is is that God has already spoken to this back in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 with hope. And he said, therefore, behold, I will allure Israel and bring her back into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Verses 10 through 14, I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram, there Israel served for a while, and for a while he guarded sheep. By a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. So that section alternates between what God had done for Israel and how they had responded. God has spoken to Israel through the prophets, exposing their sin and calling them to return. They have no excuses to give. They've been told that all of this would happen since they left Egypt. Gilead and Gilgal are once again given as examples of their sin. Gilead being the place uh, mentioned in week three of evildoers that included murder, whether figurative or literal. And Gilgal, again, was one of the main hubs for the false worship they were participating in. And God says those places and those altars will be utterly destroyed. And then we're taken back to Jacob, showing he was a shepherd, a guard of sheep. Then to Moses, who the Lord used to bring Israel out of Egypt and who guarded the people. But Israel has responded bitterly to their shepherd's keeping. The Lord will leave the punishment of blood guilt on them, which you saw in your homework is death. Chapter 13, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. Verse 1 there gives us um, a picture of the exaltation that Ephraim had once held in the area, in Israel, and in the surrounding areas. Then we see their fall clearly. They incurred guilt through Baal and died. That and died phrase took me back to the genealogy in Genesis 5 after the fall in Genesis 3, where the refrain is repeated, and he died after each generation mentioned. Ephraim's sin of idolatry, placing false gods before the true God, brought guilt that led to death. And just as God told Adam to obey his command of not eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or he would surely die, the nation Israel had been told to obey the first commandment of having no other gods before Yahweh. And they disobeyed. They brought guilt on themselves, and they'll die. They died. 
they sinned more and more, even leading to kissing calves, which I have to admit, I didn't realize that they'd done again since uh, the golden calf uh, with Moses until this study. I guess I thought that once they had to drink it the first time, they would have, um, you know, that would, that would have been the story passed down of like, hey, that's a big no-no. But even worse, as Nicole touched on last week, they even sacrificed their children to Baal. The amount of sin grew and grew. Their judgment would make them like the morning mist, the early dew, chaff, and smoke from a window. They would disappear, and they would disappear quickly. The corporate identity of the northern ten tribes would disappear forever. Verses 4 through 8, But I'm the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. So I am, I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will work beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. God contrasts his consistency to their disappearing and reminds him of who he is, their only savior. They were to only look to and have relationship with him. He draws back to their time in the wilderness after the exodus where he provided them with manna and quail. They became full of his provisions and gifts and lifted their hearts elsewhere, not to the gift giver, not to the one of whom they owed everything. They chose to not remember. They forgot their story they forgot whose they were. So he's likened to a lion, a leopard, a mother bear, and a wild beast. His jealousy for his people is shown in, the, in his judgment for their sin. And the use of attacking wild animals imagery is to give us a picture of the severity of the destruction that is coming. Verses 9 to 11. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princess? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. So the Israelites' sin of their dependence on political stability through their kings is addressed with the judgment of removal. At the beginning of Israel's kingship, they asked for a king to be like all the nations around them, and they were given Saul, rejecting God as their true king. In their history, they repeatedly asked for the wrong type of kings, and in their most recent history, they sought out foreign kings for their protection instead. A scholar pointed out that out of the 23 kings that ruled the north, only one, David, kept the covenant. All else had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and now the Lord takes their king away. The last king, King Hoshea, who was the one who broke the covenant previously made with Assyria when he called out for help to Egypt, he was captured by Assyria and thrown into their prison, according to 2 Kings 17. Assyria then invaded Ephraim's capital, Samaria, and after a few years eventually forced their surrender. Verses 12 and 13, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. As we've talked about uh, throughout the study, God remembers the sin of Ephraim. They are likened to an unwise baby that refuses to be born. They won't face their sin, and they won't repent. God would have given them life 
had they only faced their reality and returned, that they choose the wages of their sin, which is death. But God, again, right here in the middle of the consequences of their fall, suddenly the chance for redemption is promised again in verse 14. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. I hadn't realized that the verse Paul penned in 1 Corinthians 15 was originally used here in Hosea. Uh, Sheol, in case you didn't know, is uh, the Bible uses it to, to personify the grave. God is able to ransom them from the grave and redeem them from death. He alone is able to remove the plagues and sting of death. But that last line there at the end of 14 was interpreted differently across the commentaries we use. The compassion is hidden from my eyes. Half said because of Ephraim's refusal to repent, God's compassion towards them is removed and they will perish. The other half said God shows no compassion towards the last enemy of death. And I personally think both can be true at the same time. Because although Ephraim had been made aware of their choices again and again and again and told of impending judgments in great detail again and again and again, they don't take heed of the future foretelling. They've been told since the time of Moses what would come from covenant disobedience. All the prophets leading to Hosea and Hosea's contemporaries have implored them to heed the warnings. They've been told in explicit detail what the future holds, and it doesn't change them. It doesn't seem to affect them in the least. Verses 15 and 16, hard verses. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His springs shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Assyria will come from the east. God will allow it. Ephraim will dry up. All their material wealth will be carted off. Their capital will fall and the destruction will be agonizingly great. Hosea sees and shares their end. Death is here. In chapter 14, finally, finally, these whispers of redemption end with a promise to restore after the deserved punishment has been endured. But first, the hearts of the remnant must finally return. Verses 1 through 3. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. Hosea gives words to a confession and repentance of sin for the future Israel, because up to this point, we've seen the sacrifices have been empty and ritualistic. They must take words with them and draw near to God, representing their heart's change. And we saw a perfect illustration of this repentance in our James study, James 4, 8 through 10. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. One commentator said that Hosea's contemporary Amos, his call was turn for destruction is ahead of you. And I know after studying Hosea, you're like, well, that's what Hosea was saying too. But (laughs) I think if we studied Amos, we would agree with, with this. Hosea's call is turn for behind you is God. God desires right relationship with his people and he'll stop at nothing for it. He will not forget his covenant people forever. They confess their dependence on foreign kings, their own strength, and their idols. And they know that the orphan finds mercy in their God. As a son, Israel rebelled and refused the love of their father. They chose to be orphaned. But this prodigal son, after being emptied of the consequences of his actions, has returned at long last to the father who has been waiting. A covenant will be renewed and restored verses four through seven, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. The promised restoration foreshadowed in the poem in chapter 2 is further explained. God will heal them and love them. His anger will be turned away. He will make them flourish and multiply again. And we're given several examples in nature. God will be like the dew, which is what their area depended on for the flourishing of plants in their desert climate. They'll be like the large lilies that grew in the valleys and the trees of Lebanon with shoots spread, picturing their permanence. Their beauty and fragrance will be noticed. They'll dwell in, in his shadow instead of the good shade of the trees where false worship was conducted. They'll be protected and comforted by him. They'll once again be a nation who is well known and a blessing to other nations because of their God and their faithfulness to him. Verse 8 is the last heartfelt emotional challenge for Ephraim to give up his idol worship now and to remember who their God is. Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. God says there he's an evergreen. An evergreen we know is constant. It's always green, never dormant, symbolizing that he is a life. He gives them life. The fruit mentioned there that he provides to Israel is more than likely an allusion to the tree of life, the one offered uh, to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis. And so like I said at the beginning, these last four chapters cover all the elements of the big story of scripture. The creation and birth of God's chosen nation, Israel, his son, the fall of that nation due to forgetting their God, the redemption of a remnant promised to the repentant, even amidst judgment and exile, and the restoration of the nation and a homecoming for those who remember their story. And their story is part of our story. Because we can look at these last four chapters and clearly see the person who brings our redemption and restoration. Jesus Christ, God's 
son, the true and better Israel called out of Egypt. We see the son of God who didn't rebel in the wilderness, but instead provides a new and better covenant after enduring God's wrath and judgment towards our sin on the cross. In the new covenant, he covers the blood guilt left on us for our idolatry and our bent on turning away. He ransoms us from the grave. He redeems us from death. He is our only savior. He's told us that a future day of the Lord where judgment and salvation will come. He's beckoned us to live changed in light of that day and given us his spirit with the power to live in that light. He gives eternal life. And he's given us fruit from a tree of life. He's given us a glimpse of the tree of life's return where a people redeemed while in exile will one day come home to, where their covenant faithfulness will never be threatened again, fully restored, no more sin, no more curses, no more unfaithfulness, all because of him, his work, his grace, his mercy, his justice, his love, his healing, his people forever. And he's been gracious enough to give us further details of this future promise in Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord their God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The book of Hosea was a call for Israel to remember and return. The book of Hosea is a call for us to remember and return. Remember their story. Remember that their story is our story. Remember whose you are. Let's pray. God, again, you've just been so gracious to just reveal who you are through your word. I thank you for this study. I thank you for this week of all weeks, this redemption and this restoration promise that we fully understand looking back at the cross, looking back at your son, Christ, that is the, the true and better Israel, the perfect fulfillment of all of these whispers of redemption here in Hosea. We thank you for that grace and mercy that we, we have seen ourselves in the people of Ephraim and the people of Israel. We are the faithless ones. We are the ones who are undeserving. So we thank you for your undeserved grace, your undeserved love, your undeserved mercy. God, I pray as we head into discussion uh, that uh, that would just be edifying for all of us and that we would just continue to see um, insights of your word through our sisters in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.